0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers A lot to talk about today. We're clearly going to start with Aaron Sanchez and the Astros. Uh, The Mets have improved their pitching and their sliders and their defense. I hadn't noticed until this morning that Yu Darvish is pitching like an ace again. He really is. We should all pay more attention to Juan Soto. We're getting into the age-based portion of the show here. Juan Soto is young and great. Nelson Cruz is old and great. And tomorrow is Mike Trout's birthday. So that's how we're going to end the show, with all, all sorts of things about age and birthdays and the passage of time. First, Aaron Sanchez... Um, I would like to take some credit for this, but I can't. Like I honestly can't do this because any half-intelligent person on baseball Twitter called this in exactly the same way I did. Hey, Aaron Sanchez, don't throw your sinker. Maybe throw your curveball more. He gets traded to Houston, and what happens? His very first game, six no-hit innings as part of a combined (laughs) no-hitter. And it's like... (laughs)
1: It was, sometimes you can't predict baseball, as they said. Man,
0: like, I don't even know where to start with this. There's just so much happening at once here. Now, he threw six no-hit innings. Um, one of the other no-hit innings in that game was thrown by Joe Biagini, who had also come from Toronto in the same deal. At exactly the same time, in Toronto, Derek Fisher, who had gone back to the Blue Jays, got hurt because he got a ball that hit him in the face. It's just like, this deal could not have been imploding more on day one. I don't want to put too much you know, emphasis on one game, but like two-thirds of a game, really against, you know, an unimpressive Mariners lineup. I get all that. However, with Toronto, Aaron Sanchez, uh 36% four seamers, 22% curves, 22% sinkers. With Houston, 50% four seamers, 30% curves, 2% sinkers. It can't be this easy, right? <laughs> um probably not. <laughs> um
1: it it's it's obviously that the Astros are good at what they do, especially when it comes to pitching. I do like to pump the brakes a little bit on some of the narrative that's built around this, um, on a couple of fronts. Uh one of which is basically that there's already evidence that Sanchez had already been in the process over the last three years he'd been downplaying his sinker. Granted, not to the extent two percent. Um, but um you know, in 2016 he was throwing it fifty-six percent of the time. This year it's down to thirty-six percent of the time. So it's not like
0: Thirty six percent too much, apparently. <laughs> but, uh, there's,
1: but there's also this idea now that like I, I think we don't want to get too jump too quickly into this where like every pitcher needs to fit in the same bucket. Obviously Sanchez looked great in his first outing, but this idea that I, I'm seeing pop up a lot of like everyone's just throw their four seamers more and their curveball yeah. not everybody. Yeah,
0: exactly but, but but if you're like him.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, obviously, it certainly looks that way, but I think that there's there's a lot more nuance here than maybe is, is, is uh, that's being missed. Yeah,
0: so it was more than just about the different kinds of pitches that he threw. Um, he also threw his four seam higher. That is also a very Houston thing to do, and he threw his curveball lower. Uh, with Toronto, his average four seam fastball came in at two point seven four feet above the plate. With Houston, three point oh five feet. His curveball was a little bit lower than it was with with uh, Toronto, from one point eight four feet to one point seven four feet. Everybody assumes. You go to Toronto, you go to Houston, and you add spin. That didn't actually happen. His spin rate was slightly lower uh, with Houston than it was with Toronto, so that's not really you know much of a thing to me. But the curveball was really good. It's got ninety third percentile spin. Uh, it's got four point two inches more drop than other curveballs at this velocity and five inches more horizontal break. It's a really good curveball. Two forty one average against three oh two slugging against. Remember the sinker got lit up a five twenty. Slugging against. Um, but there's a couple of things I want to I want to point out here. Uh, sort of, as Matt said, like pumping the brakes just a little bit. I heard from a lot of salty Blue Jays fans who wanted to know why their team was so dumb. They couldn't see this information and tell their pitcher that. I don't believe that for even one second. There is no way that all of us nerds on Twitter could you know know this and the Blue Jays didn't know this. There's just a 0% chance of that. And it's worth worth pointing out, at least, uh, in his final two Blue Jays starts, it's actually pretty good. 16 strikeouts and no walks. I hadn't noticed that because uh, he, he still gave up a bunch of runs. And um, as I saw on, on Twitter, and this was from uh, Chris Black, who is a producer um, for Blue Jays television, he said, in fairness to Pete Walker, that's Toronto's pitching coach, I heard Joe Siddle, who is a former big league catcher and is one of the broadcasters, uh, mention on Blue Jays Central all year long that Jays pitching coach wanted Sanchez to throw more four-seamers and work up in the zone. Like, of course, they know these things. Now, why didn't it happen? That's a little tougher to say. My guess is that, um, you know, Houston is better at the communication and the presentation. And I'm certainly not there, but I imagine if you have someone like Justin Verlander drop by and say, hey, this is really good stuff. You should probably use it. I'm Justin Verlander. I'm going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. That carries a lot of weight with pitchers.
1: No question. Verlander is a perfect example uh, not only because he was he was probably a Hall of Famer before he came to the Astros, but then he basically rejuvenated his career with the Astros by following a, a similar uh, framework of you know working higher up in the zone, using his curveball more. And I think that that's that's part of it. Just sometimes when you get the same message from a different person, maybe presented a little bit differently, and someone who has a lot of credibility in this space of like, hey, we know how to fix pitchers, it can you can get more buy-in from from the pitcher, and I, that appears to at least what's, what what what's appears to be happening with Sanchez. I'm very curious to see how the rest of his season goes. Yeah,
0: his next start is, uh by the way, versus the Orioles. <laughs> it's not exactly, you know, high-quality uh hitting teams here. So, really, they, the takeaway for me for this is I don't for a second believe the Blue Jays didn't know it. Uh, of course they did, but they weren't able to implement it, and that's what's I think. Like, I'm kind of—I don't want to say I'm all in. Like, he has been really lousy for, like, two and a half years, but we all sort of said, hey, I bet you this is going to happen, and it looked really good. Um, So I'm excited about that. And don't forget, it wasn't just Sanchez. They also got uh, Joe Biagini, who has an 88th percentile curveball spin. That sounds like someone the Astros would enjoy working with. And I did want to think for a second. So tonight, from where we record, uh, Zach Greinke is making his Astros debut. And I was trying to figure out what the potential Astros playoff uh, pitching staff might look like so that your starter is very clearly Verlander, uh, Greinke, Cole, And then your fourth starter, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Your fourth starter, either Sanchez or Wade Miley, depending on how it works out, right? In the bullpen, uh, Roberto Asuna, Ryan Presley, uh, Will Harris, Brad Peacock, Joe Biagini, and then Miley or Sanchez seem obvious, and Chris Davinsky as well. And then here are the guys who might not make it in this scenario. Uh, Colin McHugh, Joe Smith, Josh James, and Hector Rondon. Those guys are really good. (laughs) It's like, this is unfair. And oh, by the way, since the All-Star game, the Astros offense second-highest weighted on base, third-highest expected weighted on base. Um, this team is firing on all cylinders once again.
1: I could see them maybe trying some, almost doing like a tandem with Miley and Sanchez, where you have let Miley start, and the other team sort of is forced to kind of play the right-handed hitters, let him go through the lineup once, so maybe he pitches two, two-plus innings. Pseudo-opener. And then you bring in, bring in Sanchez. Um, so you try and, like, you know, get six innings from them, And if they go in kind of knowing they're not expected to throw more than three innings, yeah, everything will play. All their stuff will play up a little bit. I could easily see them. doing something along those lines i
0: think the the wild card game right now is cleveland and uh either oakland or tampa i can't remember who's number two but whoever comes out of that it's Tampa right it's Tampa it has to go to Houston um that'll be a lot of fun so i'm very interested interested to see what happens with Sanchez in his next start against the Orioles and i'm very interested to see what happens with Granky tonight i don't feel like Granky's the kind of guy who's going to like wildly change the way he pitches but i guess we'll see
1: for the record the Yankees uh currently have a slightly better record than the Astros and whether or not you think that is sustainable or not there still will be a battle for the for the top record. Okay, that's fair. Um, that's which fair. Will, which is something actually worth. Why well, wouldn't necessarily say they're going to like, you know, go all out to the final day of the season? Getting to face the winner of the wild card is definitely advantageous. So it's something that will is worth monitoring as the season goes. Better on.
0: that than the Twins if they take the Central. Exactly. Fair enough. Uh, how about those Mets? I can't believe we're sitting here in August talking about the Mets as a possible playoff team. They are currently fifty-seven and fifty-six. Two and a half games out in the wild card. Uh, The Nationals and Phillies are tied. The Cardinals are half game out. The Brewers are two games out, but the Mets are red hot. They have won 11 of their last 12. Huge flashing caveat here. They've played Pittsburgh twice. The White Sox and Miami, not exactly the highest caliber of opponents, but obviously you have to play the teams that you have to play. And the most interesting thing here is that the Mets pitching and their defenses, we'll get to in a second, has really you know, turn their entire season around. As you may remember, on June 21st, they fired Dave Island, their pitching coach. They hired Phil Regan, um, but they also hired Jeremy Accardo, who is a a major leaguer pitcher from 2005 to 2012, as what they've termed pitching strategist. And it immediately went poorly. For the remainder of the month, they lost seven of their next nine. They allowed six runs per game. As you might have imagined, things have turned around somewhat. Through the end of June, The Mets had a 485 ERA. That was 22nd best in baseball. Since July 1st, a 334 ERA, fourth best in baseball. That is a difference of like a run and a half, which is enormous. Um, It's not really about more strikeouts or fewer walks. It's about the same. It is very much about uh, better contact and also better defense. So through the end of June, they had a 310 expected weighted on base, but they'd actually allowed a 327 weighted on base. The 17 point negative gap was the worst in baseball. Now that could point to poor luck, but we all know it actually points to lousy defense. Um, wouldn't you know, things have changed. The defense, and I'm specifically talking about Ahmed Rosario here, has been phenomenal. Uh, the way I looked at this is I just looked at ground balls only because I wanted to see the infield. Through the end of June, the Mets, on ground balls, had allowed a 277 batting average, but their expected batting average based off, on quality of contact was only 250. That is a 27-point negative gap, second worst in baseball, it has gone the exact opposite direction. Since July 1st, they've allowed a 201 batting average and a 230 expected batting average. That is a 29 point gap. In the other way, fourth highest, Ahmed Rosario, just based on the eye test, I don't have great infield defense numbers to give you yet, has looked fantastic. Oh, and he's crushing the ball too. Since July 1st, 404 on base, 538 slugging. Remember, they were talking about making him a center fielder or possibly a member of the AAA team. He has been incredible.
1: He's looked like the player we we raved about in the second half of last season and, you know, the, the kind of breakout star we thought he might be on the verge of becoming and maybe it looks like that
0: is happening again I think last year we uh termed him as one of the most improved hitters in baseball and then tried to forget we said that after he <laughs> didn't really hit after that um but yeah he's been a big part of this and then it's also been about you know a little bit with the, the star pitchers have really turned it around with their pitches usage. so for example Jacob deGrom has been fantastic lately he through the end of June through 53 percent uh, four seamers 26 percent sliders since July 1st it's essentially even, 40% and 40%. Uh, Noah Syndergaard has tr- stopped throwing his sinker as much, 35% down to 28%, a lot more four-seamers. I don't want to just say, like, it's entirely because of the new pitching coach, but I feel like that's not – it's too much of a coincidence to ignore that.
1: There seems to be something at play here, especially with the team – like, almost all of their pitchers across the board throwing their their slider more. And so that's that's kind of uh, – on. In line with a lot of what a lot of teams are doing, and it's interesting because it's Phil Regan, the
0: 82 year old pitching coach. The Mets yeah, hired. yeah, you can you can take your he's old jokes elsewhere because he's apparently had a huge influence.
1: Um, and uh, Degrom, in particular, the slider's been uh, really outstanding. He's he's been averaging in his last outing, he uh, which was I guess in game one of the doubleheader yesterday, he averaged 92.2 miles per hour on his slider. That's higher than 243 pitchers. Average on their fastball velocity this year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hat tip Darren Woman on Twitter. Um, so he's he's really leaning into that slider. And that's sort of like early in the year, it was like, oh, DeGrom's not really having the same year he had last year. And he's not because he couldn't really repeat last year. But his last like six weeks, he's looked kind of like that pitcher while really focusing on the slider.
0: I know Edwin Diaz is. Been kind of flailing around. Have you noticed how incredible Seth Lugo has been? His his last three games of June were really bad. The Mets went through a really rough stretch that final week of June. Uh, he ha- he allowed seven runs over his final three games of, of June. Since July first, he's gotten into 14 games, 19 strikeouts, one walk, three singles. That is uh, a line of .061, .098, .061. If you look at every pitcher who's had at least 50 batters faced since July first, and you look at expected weighted on base. Seth Lugo has been the best pitcher in baseball. Justin Verlander, number three. I could give you a trillion guesses. You would never, ever guess number two. Chris Stratton, who we used to talk about a lot because he has a high-spin curveball, but he doesn't ever throw it, uh, is number two. But Seth Lugo has been fantastic. He has been, over the course of the entire season, probably one of the 15 or 20 best relievers in baseball.
1: I think that's a fair to say. Fun fun Seth Lugo fact. He allowed, uh, on July 16th, in an adding against the Twins... He threw a scoreless inning, but he allowed a hit. Since then, he has thrown ten innings without allowing a hit. He has a hit and no hitter going. He's threw ten Ooh. innings without a without a hit, eleven strikeouts and zero walks, one hit batter.
0: Every time I tweet something nice about Seth Lugo, his mom likes it, <laughs> which which I always appreciate. Well, well, nice.
1: Seth Lugo is kind of like the patron saint of uh, of Statcast. Early on, he was uh, he was kind of your uh, your guy.
0: We were sitting. I can't remember literally in this studio or maybe the one that's like five feet that way when we were doing our old MLB plus games for his major league debut. And he and he came out and he threw that curveball that hit Anthony Rizzo in the back foot after he swung through it. I had no idea who this guy was at the time. And at first it seemed like, oh, that's fun. Crazy curveball spin guy. He'll be a fun, you know, sort of sideshow to watch. And now he's just like legitimately good. He's one of the best relievers in baseball. It's it's amazing to see how far he's come with this.
1: And now he's basically, you know, whether or not it's the right call or not, he might actually end up being the Mets' Close. closer. Yeah. Uh, last night he got a two in the six, the second game of doubleheader. He got a two inning save, six up, six down. Um, of course Diaz had pitched in the first game, but it's almost like the way you're losing Lugo is going okay. Maybe you shouldn't mess with that. I don't know.
0: I look forward to him being traded to Houston next year on his way to Cooperstown. After that, <laughs> uh, the number one trending player in baseball savant right now, Darren instituted, uh, you know, he's tracking views to player pages, and he's looking at who's gone up and down over the last 24 hours. It's pretty fun to see what people are interested. The number one trending player on baseball savant right now, J.D. Davis, who the Mets actually got from Houston uh, in a trade last year, and I'm pretty sure we talked about him partially because, you know, we loved his hard hit skills, but also because when he pitched, uh, he was actually pretty impressive. Like, we were like, oh, this is the guy who should be the next two-way player. That part hasn't really happened. Uh, He's crushing the ball. He's hitting 300, 369, 498 a weighted runs created plus of 131 he is 95th percentile and hard hit he's got a better hard hit rate than Pete Alonso he's 95th percentile an expected weighted on base slightly better than Pete Alonso obviously far fewer played appearances in other words best on the team yeah best on the team obviously hasn't played as much so fine not much of a defender we, we always knew that was going to be the case but he's crushing the ball uh, and as Matt found something interesting he is conquering city field in a way few right-handed batters uh, ever have really
1: yeah, in um, since Citi Field opened in, uh, I this was a, a tip I got from our Mets beat reporter uh, Anthony Nocomo, who mentioned how how hard how hard of a time right-handed hitters have had hitting for power at Citi Field, which obviously goes back when it opened. They had the bigger dimensions, and David Wright really saw his power numbers dip, and so it's kind of been an ongoing narrative about right-handed hitters struggling at city field granted they've they've moved in the fences and and that's changed a little bit although in recent years the ball hasn't really carried that well so there's been other questions about how um how right-handers can hit at that ballpark that is not the case this season so i looked at the best sling percentage by a right-handed hitter in city field history J.D. Davis right now is far and away number one. He's at 689. Pete Alonso, of course, is second at 623. We're talking about a single season here. So coming before this year, the best ever for a single season was UNA Cespedes in 2016 at 522. Alonzo was, I mean, uh, Davis is 170 points uh, ahead of that. This is after he came in
0: last night and hit a, uh, a double uh, and a home run. His hard hit skills are absolutely for real. Um, I'm curious. So... Now that Robinson Cano is injured and he's probably going to miss a decent amount of time, do you think Jeff McDeal is going to play more second and you'll see more Davis at third? I know there's still a Frazier, obviously. How is that going to shake out?
1: I think it's what good chance what could happen, and I was actually talking about this with uh, with uh, Mr. DeComo, is I wouldn't be surprised if they bring up someone from the minors, such as Ruben Tejada, who's actually raking in A to play second base. And or maybe even Danny Espinoza, who's actually playing pretty well. Br- bring up Delson Herrera too. I mean, really good. <laughs> I, think, go he's on the, for I it. think he's on the IL, but I wouldn't be surprised. I think their their internal solutions in the infield are better than they are in the outfield because right now yeah. Juan Lagaris and Aaron Althair are not hitting at all, and so,
0: Lagaris isn't even playing defense like he used to. So I
1: think more likely what you see is Conforto in center, Davis in left, uh, McNeil in right, and right, with it's... with some, fill, some with Frazier still third and some. Someone, whether it's Luis Cuyorme who's up now, but he's already on the 40 man, which Tejada is not. Um, could be Tejada, could be Espinosa. Who knows? But uh
0: That is one of the rougher defensive outfields I think I can think indeed, of. I think McNeil
1: might be the best relative yeah. to their position. McNeil might be
0: the best. Um if if Tejada gets called up, Mets fans give him a standing ovation, right? I mean the like narrative like the, a the, hero's the, welcome the narrative is of Chase is, Yes, the narrative yeah.
1: of that is, is off the charts. Right. coming up, he's hitting three I mean, everyone's hitting a triple A, but he's hitting three fifty at triple A. AAA, so it's like it's not hard to imagine him getting called up at this point. And one thing that's interesting to note about, at least if you go to the baseball savant leaderboards and you look at outs above average for outfields, the Mets outfield is not good, but it hasn't been terrible. And they've had Conforto or Nimmo, who's not a true center fielder, in center field a lot of the season anyway. So I think... When they look at their concerns of like, oh, what do we need to fix on this team? I think they're comfortable with Conforto in center field and McNeil and right. for now. A um,
0: the, the, the long term, they need yeah a for sure system. for this. I'm saying for this season yep.
1: when you consider you know that Cano's out for a while, you know Lowry's out for a while, Nimmo's out for a while. That's probably
0: going to be the the um, the best alignment that they have. Call up Tejada. call up Herrera, track down Daryl Siciliani. <laughs> Find all of the 2015 Mets. Like, where's John Mayberry Barry Jr. right now? I want to bring them all back. I just assume they're going to pick up Kelly Johnson at some point.
1: Uh, you, know, you you never know. I would like to say, but b- before we move on to our next topic, that I think I said this on the podcast. If I didn't, I should have last week. I definitely said it to Mike in our cubicle. Uh, after they traded for Marcus Stroman, it made perfect sense. I, I looked at their schedule, and I was like, they could get back in the race over the next two weeks. They're playing some of the worst teams in baseball. And sure enough, I didn't expect them to go whatever. 11-1. and 11-1, <laughs> but they have. Um, with two more games against the Marlins as we record this before they uh, host the um, the Nationals this weekend. But uh, everyone gets to play the bad teams, too. You know, I just look, the Yankees are 11-2 and two against the Orioles this
0: year. <laughs> well, so the, that, the Yankees <laughs> play more Orioles, and the Mets still have a trip to Kansas City ahead of them. So the, they, all, they all count the
1: same in the standings. So obviously the games will get a lot harder, but it, uh the wild card race uh, is in the National League is definitely interesting.
0: And one team that may not be in the wild card race are are is whatever the Cubs, uh, who are kind of pulling away a little bit, two and a half games up on St. Louis. And what was kind of surprising to me when I looked into the Cubs is that you Darvish has been phenomenal. <laughs> you know, he he uh, struggled so badly last year in his first year of the deal. His first start of this year, seven walks and two and two thirds innings. His last nine starts of this year. Seven walks in 53 and two thirds innings. He's like really uh, found a way to throw strikes. Since July 1st, uh, he has had, he's been the best starting pitcher in baseball. If you look at a, a expected weight on baseball. excuse me, mean the fourth best. Uh, Verlander's number one, Degrom number two, Anthony DeSclafani somehow number three. Didn't see that one coming. Right, we'll
1: have to maybe that's next podcast. Yeah,
0: uh, Darvish number four in his his last nine starts or excuse me in the last six starts. 42 four strikeouts, two walks. This is a guy who I've always kind of considered effectively wild because he throws like nine different pitch types. Um, He has really just become an entirely new pitcher for a Cubs team that kind of desperately needed it. I mean, their bullpen is sort of falling apart at the moment. Uh, And the way he's doing it, it's it's hard to look at his pitch types just because he throws so many pitches. Like, the classifications are really difficult to do. But if you just look at uh, his primary pitches, which are generally his sinker and his cutter— uh, in June, he threw his sinker in the strike zone 40% of the time, 53% in July, 67% so far in August. His cutter, 53% in the zone in June, 58% in July, 65% in August. I know it's not as simple as throw more strikes, um, and if it was, he would just simply do it, but that's that's what he's done. He's also added more velocity. His fastball 4 seamers is up from 93.1 in April to 95 now, and his release point is actually a bit higher as well, uh, from 5.5 feet in April to 5.8 feet in August. He is such a complicated pitcher. He's so difficult to break down, but when he's on, you know, he was at one point an ace for Texas. He was one of the best pitchers in baseball. He got hurt, went to the Dodgers, was good right up until he wasn't in the World Series, signed a big deal with the Cubs, got hurt, ineffective. Um, You know how little I care about pitcher wins, but I I think I saw that he had his first home win as a Cub like three weeks ago, which is wild to me. He signed (laughs) last year. Um, Yeah, he is a big deal for the Cubs because if you look at the Cubs bullpen, uh, Kimberl was, you know, okay, and now he's hurt with a knee soreness. I mean, he should be back at some point. Carl Edwards was traded to the Padres, and uh, they are already a little thin in the bullpen, and now they're really thin in the bullpen. So Darvish uh, stepping up a little bit here uh, is, like, desperately needed for them. It's kind of shocking.
1: He's, um, he's kind of a good example of what I was talking about before in terms of, you know, he's reinvented himself, but he's kind of doing it a little bit against conventional wisdom because he's a guy that early on when we talked about StatCast – uh, in the first couple of years when we looked you know we we talked a lot about uh, especially on this podcast talked a lot about pitchers with four seam fastballs with high spin rates and he was one of the guys high in the leaderboards with like Justin Verlander you know you have a four seam spin rate in the 2500 range that's that that really where you see guys with the, the rising fastball effect where the ball defies gravity more and that was a big part of Darvish's success was dominating with a high high spin four seam fastball up in the zone and while a lot of other if you talk about, oh, throwing their 4 seam more, work up in the zone more, he's become this year really reliant on his cutter. You know, he's becoming a guy who's throwing his cutter more than anything while downplaying the 4 fastball. So he's, he's following sort of a, a different formula and reinventing himself. Um, you know, he's the guy that, you know, when he was with the Rangers, he was throwing his cutter like 15% of the time. Now he's throwing it like 35% of the time.
0: Yeah. And, and the cutter is interesting. It's really, like I said, hard to classify. I think other sites will call it a slider. Uh, we actually reached out to the Cubs and they're like, it's cutter, but it's also kind of a mess. Um, I have a, a Cubs related question for you. Do you know anything about Rowan Wick?
1: I do not. <laughs> is that, <laughs>
0: that, that is a pitcher on the Cubs. It's okay. Not, a, not an action movie spinoff? Uh, wow. No, that's that's a good one. No. Um, Ron Wick, uh, I, don't, I can't say I knew much about him before um, a couple days ago myself, but he's been pretty impressive for the Cubs. He had a 180 ERA in AAA. So far, 13 and two-thirds innings for the Cubs, a 198 ERA for them. He's actually drafted by a hitter by the Cardinals, a ninth rounder in 2012, was convert, converted to the mound. In twenty fifteen, went to the Padres on waivers early last year, traded to the Cubs late last year. Uh is off to a pretty good start, and it's not hard to see why. His curveball is really impressive. He if he qualified, which he doesn't yet, he would have a top ten curveball in terms of a, a vertical drop. It drops more than seven inches above the average, which is really good. That would be top ten. Curveballs allowed a 143 average, a 176 weighted on base. Again, small samples here. But this does seem to be a guy who's, who's interesting, was successful in the minors, has been successful so far for the Cubs, who, again, desperately need any bullpen help they can get. You saw they took a flyer on uh, Derek Holland to be their, not maybe not loogie, but you know left-handed specialist out of the pen. Uh, they're sort of stitching it together with duct tape a little bit and also behind the plate because Wilson Contreras is hurt, and they had just traded Martin Maldonado, who they had just acquired. <laughs> uh, so now their catchers are Victor Caratini and Taylor Davis, which is not necessarily what you want. Although I will say, uh, Nick Castellanos has been raking for the Cubs so far.
1: Uh, the, you look at the Cubs; there, I mean, they're two games up on the Cardinals in, in the lost column, so it's 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 still it's still very much a race. One thing notable about the Cubs, and I'm not sure how much to read into this, they have one of the largest home road disparities in baseball. They are 40 and 18 at home, and 21 and 33 away. Which is, I mean,
0: forty and eighteen. Yes. Wow,
1: <laughs> that's not. There's some. There seems to be something at play there. But they're a team that even if they win the division, um, are not. they are five games beyond the Braves, so they're probably not. Or four games beyond the Braves, probably not going to get uh, home field in the in the DS. Where I between mean, the Dodgers, of course, are going to get the number one seed. I think that's a safe bet. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's something to monitor as we we approach the postseason. Is the Cubs uh, um, surprisingly large uh, home road discrepancy?
0: I did want to take a minute to talk about Juan Soto of the Washington Nationals. Now, the highly educated listeners of this show probably know all about Juan Soto, but it did feel like to me, we just weren't talking about him enough um, in terms of just like how great of a start he's off to in his career. And I think part of it is because uh, he's just consistent. Like You think about Mike Trout, right? And that's the one thing that always stands out to me. He's consistently great. He doesn't really go through bad stretches. And Juan Soto is sort of the same. We're not saying, oh, you know, what's wrong with Juan Soto? And everybody tries to figure it out like we do with, you know, Jose Ramirez, right? Um, Juan Soto is still 20 years old. He is having a season that is really good. Uh, 399 on base, 522 slugging. It is almost identical to what he did last year. Last year he had a 392 weighted on base. This year it's 385. And we, you know, I think already just take for granted that he's going to be that guy and he's going to be really good this is legitimately one of the best starts in the history of major league baseball and i feel like we say best something in something a lot but this one's actually you know considerably true if you look at uh, the best starts through age 20 in the history of baseball the minimum of 800 plate appearances uh, number one and i'm looking at weighted runs created plus here is mel ott with 144 so that's 44 percent above average number two mickey mantle number three tied with ty cobb ahead of a rod juan soto and if you lower the minimum from 800 plate appearances to 400, you get guys like Ted Williams, Frank Robinson, Jimmy Fox, Rogers Hornsby, and Ronald Acuna. So basically, if you are this good this young, as long as you can stay healthy, you are essentially guaranteed a trip to the Hall of Fame. Which seems like a lot to put on a guy who's 20 years old, but he's there, he's sort of earned it so far. Yeah, I think the thing with, with Soto, and it, it's just,
1: I would just compare to some of his peers that have come up, just the type of player that he is he just doesn't have the kind of loud tools that some of the, there's been so many really exciting young players that have debuted in the last couple of years, you know, Acuna, um, for T- Tatis Jr., even Vlad Jr., who just like hits the ball really hard and is also, you know, Vlad Jr. Right. So, I mean, there's something kind of just like, there's like a, a quiet consistency of Juan Soto.
0: That's fantastic, but it's not like, there's nothing like loud about his game. Well, I think that's interesting because his best tools, um, are elite but you're right they're not exactly like highlight film his his plate appearance uh, excuse me plate discipline that is his best tool uh, over the last 2 years only 3 players have higher walker it's Mike Trout Bryce Harper Carlos Santana superstars or veterans at least not 20 year old rookies that's that's incredible
1: to me yeah the, the player he actually reminds me of from his, from in terms of not just approach great great eye at the plate but also his stance left hand hitter with sort of that high back elbow is Baba Abreu and who was also kind of, granted, Bobby Barrow in his peak stole a lot of bases, but was still just sort of, like, there was nothing that, like, loud about his game. And it was always kind of underrated, um, I think, because, like, his best tool was bait dis- play discipline, which, like, doesn't really show up can highlight. You can't show
0: a highlight of, it, hey, great take.
1: And, like, he doesn't, he also never hits the ball. You know, Juan Soto's longest career home run is is 443 feet, which is, like, you know. Pretty good. A nice home run, but it's not like, oh my goodness, you know, stop what you're doing and watch this home run.
0: While I said that his season, uh, his line is essentially a carbon copy of last year, and that's true in the outcomes. There are three things I found that he's actually getting better at. The first is that he is getting way better at non-fastballs, at off-speed and breaking pitches. Last year, literally the best hitter in baseball at fastballs at, at his age, which is insane, 486 weighted on base. Last year, he was the 183rd best at hitting breaking and off-speed pitches, uh, weighted on base up to 65. And wouldn't you know it, over the first two months of this year, only two regular players saw fewer fastballs. Teams are good at figuring this stuff out. And our Jamal Collier, uh, Nationals Beat reporter, wrote in April, and I quote, the Nationals are giving Soto something like a crash course on off-speed pitches during his BP sessions. 100 curveballs on Tuesday, 100 sliders on Wednesday, 100 change-ups planned on Thursday. Seems like a great way to get used to those sort of pitches. Now this year, his breaking and off-speed has gone from 265 weighted on base to 350, 28th best, and he still hits fastballs. So that's a pretty good uh, example of uh, identifying a flaw and fixing it. Uh, he also. Has hit way fewer grounders. His ground ball rate has dropped from 53.7% to 41.2%. That is a 12.5% drop. That is the largest drop in baseball. Hey, don't hit grounders. And as I sort of joked on Twitter, uh, you know, grounders are bad. It's like played at this point, like it's not news. Everybody knows that. Look at the list of the guys who have dropped their ground ball percentage the most. Number one is Juan Soto, historically good young player. Number two is Cody Ballinger, who's probably going to win the NL MVP. Number three is Christian Yelich, who just did win the MVP and has a case for another one. Could very well. I think that's, that one's going to come down to the wire. Uh, I think Bellinger's uh, fielding will give him the advantage, that's but fair. that's a different conversation. Uh, number four is Trey Mancini, who probably deserved to make the all-star team. He's going to hit 30 homers. Number five, Michael Conforto, having a really great year. And uh, number six is Cattell Marte, who's had like one of the biggest power breakouts uh, in all of baseball. It's like, that is a really impressive list to be on and it just it doesn't seem interesting to say don't hit grounders anymore but then I see the names on that list and it's like oh yeah no don't don't hit grounders anymore.
1: <laughs> One under in- interesting thing from a statcast perspective regarding Juan Soto is that his results and performance match up really nicely. Last year his weighted on base was 392, his expected weighted on base was 371. This year's weighted on base is 390, his expected weighted on base is literally 390.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So, so there's I no love that. like
1: there's no like there's no, like, quote-unquote, luck or flukiness here. This is just, like, a really good, consistent hitter, like, basically came into the league as a near-finished product and seems to be getting better. And, yes, if he stays healthy, seems to be on track to be a Hall of Fame-type career trajectory. When you're doing this at age 20, the only people who do this at age 20 are Hall of Fame-type players, as Mike mentioned, you know, Mel Alex Rodriguez, uh, yeah, Ty Cobb, right.
0: Uh, like the, on this list, the guys who didn't get in, um, you know, A. not eligible yet, and Tony Canigliero obviously, you know, had the bean ball. But pretty much everybody else gets in. And the third thing that he's improving at. Is he's gotten a lot better at defense you know like we talked a lot last year about you know should it be Acuna or Soto for the NL Rookie of the year and I think a lot of people said well Acuna is a better outfielder maybe that's a tiebreaker last year Soto wasn't that great uh negative six outs above average that's below average this year plus four so he's already had a swing of 10 outs his speed has not changed an identical 27.2 feet per second each of the last two years but Fortunately, now we have things that we can measure jump and reaction and burst. And, you know, going back again to Jamal Collier, he quoted uh, uh, Soto in March. He said, the more I work on my defense, the better my future will be. And Jamal went on to detail that Soto and Nationals coach Bobby Henley would, and I quote, work on drills designed to quicken Soto's first step. We can measure those things now. And it's actually true. Last year, his jump. And so we uh, we introduced this a couple weeks ago. And this is feet traveled in the right direction in the first three seconds was League average, it was zero compared to average. Uh, this year, it's up to plus 0.6, so he's gained half a foot. His reaction time, so that's essentially first step, that's feet covered in the first one and a half seconds, has gone from zero to 0.7 feet above average. So these are not huge numbers, um, but he said he was working on it. He has shown that in the data, and he's become, you know, not he's not going to be an elite outfielder. He's never going to be Byron Buxton or anything, but he is an above-average player. And, again, I hate to compare a guy like this to Mike Trout, but when I think about Trout, I think of consistent greatness, and every year he picks something out he's going to get better at, and then he does it. That's kind of how this reads to me. You know, he's not hes not going to have the elite power. I don't think Trout does. Um, and he's not going to be like a plus center fielder like Trout is. But otherwise... <laughs> I kind of like get the same feeling here. Uh, We're going to get
1: to Trout in a second, but before we get to Trout, let's talk about um, a guy on the other end of the spectrum from Juan Soto, maybe the best old guy in baseball this year. Nelson
0: Cruz turned 39 years old on July 1st, and he is, I guess, one of the few players left I can write about and say, hey, I still got a chance. There's someone older than me in Major League Baseball. He right now has the fourth best expected weighted on base at 431 behind Trout, Bellinger, and Yelich. He is the fourth best weighted runs created plus at 162 behind Trout, Yelich, and Bellinger. You could pretty conclusively say he's one of the four best hitters in baseball. Uh, ignore the defense. Obviously, he's a designated hitter. He has the third best hard hit rate behind Aaron Judge and Miguel Snow. He is, again, 39 years old and he is still raking. And so I thought that was interesting. And I thought to myself, well, I want to know, you know, what does this look like in the context of all time, you know, old guy seasons? And I don't mean that derisively. We've just. You talked a lot in baseball about how the game is trending uh, younger. Everybody wants youth. Everybody wants speed. You know, defensive flexibility. Older right-handed DHs aren't exactly the flavor of the moment. Um, so I went back and I looked, and because of his birthday being July 1st, it's got a little confusing. July 1st is traditionally the cutoff date for seasonal age, so some places will say he's 38, some will say 30. He's 39. Uh, just bear with me on this. I looked at every batting season of uh, qualified number of plate appearances of at least age 38 or older. And again, used weighted runs, created plus. So 100 is league average. And he right now with his 162 is in the top 10. The only guys who have ever had a better season at this age are two from Barry Bonds, two from Ted Williams, one from Babe Ruth, one from Ty Cobb. And one from Bob Johnson, which I did not see coming for the 1944 Boston Red Sox. Uh, say what you will about later stage Barry Bonds, but Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb. Those are legitimate names. That that says something. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are definitely remembering some guys. <laughs> um, I also thought it was kind of fun. He has upped his launch angle by one degree every single year. Uh, if you round to the nearest digit, 10 degrees, 11 degrees, 12 degrees, 13 degrees, 14 degrees every single year has gone up just a little bit crushes the ball and still hits it hard uh he is first in barrels per plate appearance obviously barrels are the perfect combination of launch angle and exit velocity as i said third in hard hit fourth in expected weighted on base he is a big part of what the twins are doing because you know he's been worth 3 wins above replacement even with zero defensive value and the twins have gone back and forth between being 3 and 4 wins up on Cleveland he's he's totally he
1: is completely kind of like bucked the aging curve you know he when he signed that four-year deal with Seattle... We all left. It was like, oh, this is a joke. We like, all what left. Are, what are the Mariners doing? Like, I, I will definitely admit to being really wrong about that. He raped for the Mariners. Um, right now, he's slugging 641. His previous career high was 566 with the 2015 Mariners. I think that was the first, might have been the first year of that four-year deal. Um, that's right. Uh, I never thought he would still be doing this now, but uh, good for Nelson Cruz. And Mike did a piece that touched on some of this, and one of the more interesting things was, you know, Nelson Cruz didn't become a... A regular until his late twenties, you know he bounced around. He was originally signed by the Mets. Signed and he by was the, the Brewers. Mets, traded he to Oakland. He traded, traded to Oakland for
0: Jorge Valandia. Yes, he was <laughs> traded to uh, Milwaukee in the Immortal Keith Ginter deal. Of course, I uh, had like a cup of coffee who, with who them. Who could forget? Who could forget uh, a cup of coffee with the Brewers? Didn't really go anywhere. Went to uh, Texas in the uh, Francisco Cordero and a bunch of other guys deal. And that's where it became. Well, eventually, cause he had, he was with Texas for two seasons. Didn't do much. Uh, actually got DFA'd when he didn't make the opening day roster unclaimed on waivers, spent most of 2008 in the minors, Um, and then came up and actually crushed for, like, the last six weeks of that season. Made the All-Star team in 2009, by which point he was already—I don't have it in front of me—like, 26, 27 years old. So Ten years ago,
1: he was basically—then he was 29.
0: Yeah, well, well, there you go. I wanted to know, what was was the highest percentage of home runs hit after turning 30 years old? And for anyone who's going to fact-check me on this, I don't actually mean, like, the day you turn 30. Again, seasonally age, it gets convoluted. Um, He has— 335 home runs since he turned 30. He only hit 55 before that. So that means nearly 86% of his home runs have been hit in his 30s. And that is a large number. What I did is I looked at anyone who had 100 career home runs at a minimum. Jason Bernard, our friend here, helped me with this. Only five guys have a higher percentage of their home runs hit after 30 years old. And they all have interesting stories. For example, Hank Sauer, seven before 30, 250 after 30. But missed a chunk of time to serving in world war ii that makes sense um a couple other guys in this list you know Rello Banya's, edgar martinez brian downing they all have the kind of similar uh couldn't get enough playing time because they just couldn't field and then they were full-time dhs but it took a minute um number four on this list one of the guys just above nelson cruz i can i find entertaining dante bichette uh had a little bit of time with i think the angels and then went to the brewers maybe? maybe the brewers too and then went to uh not only pre-Humidor Coors Field, pre course Field Mile High. Like He was on the OG was Rockies. He, was he in the expansion draft? He might have been in the expansion draft. But anyway, you know, I wish I had been able to go to games at that park or pre-Humidor Coors Field. But when you were at mid-90s Rocky, uh, you are going to hit a lot of home runs at home, and it took him a minute to get there, right? So most of his home runs uh, came courtesy of that after age 30. Uh, and then you also have someone like uh, Jose Bautista who, you know, has a somewhat similar story. Bounced around to a bunch of teams. Had uh, he might have been the first like launch angle guy before we knew what that was. Like him and Josh Donaldson at the same yeah, time. kind of. So anyway, Nelson Cruz, here's to you. You're 39 years old and you're having one of the greatest old guy seasons ever. And he's not slowing down. He how long can he do this indefinitely?
1: My favorite Nelson Cruz fact was somehow up until two weeks ago he had never had three home runs in a game. No, he's, he's done, done twice. it twice in the last two <laughs> <Yes>. weeks. <laughs> <laughs> The, the it was the the first one was against the uh, the white sox, and he like he you know he, he homered he homered like and he, like he crushed one like the first inning and i like went in our our slack room for our Statcast slack room and i was like he's hitting four tonight and he he homered his first three at bats and i was like oh my goodness this is actually gonna happen he,
0: career that, <laughs> career highs and slugging career highs and on base even within the context of the fact that matt and i have both hit three home runs sitting here during the show it is wildly impressive <laughs> what he's been able to do and yes elephant in the room obviously he was suspended about five years ago uh for you know violating the drug policy that's bad and we can't look past that, but I'm certainly not going to say that has caused him to be better for the last five years <laughs> compared to what he was for the five years before that. It doesn't yeah. work like that. No
1: question. And um, if you've noticed the theme to the show, we've talked a lot about age. we I talked about Soto and talked about Nelson Cruz. And this all comes up because um, it's actually a piece that Will Leach did for uh, MLB.com, uh, which is publishing uh, on Wednesday, Mike Trout's birthday. Um, he did the best player at every age in baseball right now. So Mike Trout will now be the best 28-year-old 28, 28 in baseball right now. And then he went through, okay, there's been a player who played at 19 this year, Elvis Luciano, so he's b- default the best player at age 19. And Fernando Rodney, the only guy at 42. Um, then, of course, you have Nelson Cruz, the best player at age 39. And Mike Trout, who turns 28 yeah. years old on Wednesday, August 7th, is without question the best player in baseball right now. And we just want, as we close the show, we want to take a minute to just celebrate uh, what Mike Trout continues to do.
0: I don't know if I've ever felt older than the fact that when he plays next year, it will be his 10th year in the big leagues. Like, How is that possible already? And that will make him eligible for the Hall of Fame, which he would have been a slam dunk for in my book about six years ago, I think. Uh, Mike Trout, so far, leading baseball in expected weighted on base. Shocking. Per baseball reference, he is at 71.6 war, 90th all time. Remember, he hasn't even turned 28 yet, officially. Uh, He is... Coming up on Reggie Jackson, Frank Thomas, Derek Jeter, Rafael Palmeiro, he's gonna catch these guys before he turns 29 years old. He's gonna catch Derek Jeter this year, and yeah. that's it's
1: gonna be when he when he does that, and like people start pointing it out, and it's just people are gonna. It, that'll be a fun. That will be a fun, not fun day on baseball
0: Twitter. No, it'll be a super fun <laughs> day on baseball Twitter. It it really will be. But it is it is
1: remarkable that even like you know all the talk this year is. About what Yelich is doing, Bellinger's doing, and Yelich is doing, and they are having insane seasons. But despite all that, Mike Trout is still having as good or better of a season.
0: He, he's it's... he's got his best ever OPS. He doesn't have his best ever like OPS plus just because offense is up. Um, but he just keeps humming along. And like we've said, he just finds something to get better at. Last year it was his defense. You know now I think he's got a career low strikeout rate. I think you know remember a couple years ago was the high fastball. Uh, he just keeps humming along, and the Angels, again, are not going to make the playoffs, which is disappointing because all I want to see is this man in the World Series someday, uh, and I'm just putting it out there now. If the Angels' failure to compete this year means that he doesn't win the MVP again, I'm going to be very upset.
1: I mean, l- I'm looking at the Fangraphs leaderboards now. He still leads the majors in war by more than one win. He's at 7.5. Yellish and Bellinger are tied at 6.4.
0: He's going to end up with like another 10-win season. Uh, so there are very few guys in baseball history to have any ten-win seasons. He's going to end up by the time all s- is all said and done, like seven of them.
1: It's uh, I mean, and the, the Angels did themso- in terms of getting him back to the postseason, they did themselves no favors. You talk about teams that had rough off seasons. Oh they just, man! In the last week, they just DFA'd uh, Jonathan Lucroy, and before that, Matt Harvey, who were like two of their and,
0: and before that, Cody Allen.
1: They're big. Their, their big signings of the off season. So it was a it was a rough. Uh, winter for the angels and it's not they're not really looking that much closer to the playoffs
0: they are very much not but uh joe adele got promoted to triple a and that is very exciting
1: yes yeah, so the outfield with trout and adele in the next year or so could uh be some of the some uh the must watch outfield in baseball anyway happy birthday to mike trout happy
0: birthday to mike trout we are all so fortunate to have you to watch uh every night that is our show for this week this is the mlb.com StackCast podcast thanks for listening